I'll never forget the day um, when Kathy and I took our girls to Oklahoma. <clears throat> we went to, we've been to Beaver's Bend National Park quite a few times. I don't know how many times, a bunch, uh, through the years. And one of the times we were there, our younger daughter, Katie, was just learning to ride a bike. And we would always take our bikes with us. I mean, it looked like grapes of wrath going down the, <laughs> down the highway. We'd have our bikes strapped on and uh, every which way. We'd get there, unload the bikes, and, and Katie just learned how to ride without her training wheels. And there, at Beaver's Bend, there are hills galore, and she was riding her bike, and I happened to be at the bottom of the hill looking up, and here she came. No training wheels, no brakes, just 100 miles an hour straight down. And you know, you, you look at your child's face, and you can tell that face that says, I am not in control. <laughs> and anyway, so she comes blazing down the hill, and I can tell she's going to come right by me. Well, I notice on, there's a ditch right there, and so this is not going to end well. So as she comes by me, I just reach down and grab her and pull her off the bike and just kind of toss her up. The bike goes sailing off into the abyss, and Katie flops down on the ground right beside me, perfectly fine, except a little hurt. She hopped up hotter than a hornet. <laughs> Daddy, why did you do that? And I just simply pointed to the abyss. And she didn't put the two together. Really, I mean, she just didn't get it. She thought I'd knocked her off her bike but didn't understand why I had knocked her off her bike. And as the years gone by, I've, I've never forgot that, that incident, particularly because it, pl it plays such a profound metaphor to us and our Heavenly Father. Because I don't know if you figured it out yet in life. I haven't. Every once in a while, I'll catch a just glimpse of the truth. But the reality is we're not in control either. We are headed down a hill with no brakes and no training wheels. And uh, our Heavenly Father is all that stands between us and the abyss. And often, God's method for saving us is hurting us. And that's a challenge because our assumption is that fathers protect us from all pain. This is what we expected and experienced a lot from our earthly fathers. But when our Heavenly Father crawls outside of that, and in addition to all the blessings like heaven and salvation and stuff, He gives us a blessing of a trial or a, a tribulation. It causes, it gives us what, what you might call a spiritual pause. One lady said this to Dr. Les Carter. I was raised in a conservative church where we were taught to seek God's guidance, but I've concluded that all that teaching was a crock. Where was God when I needed Him? Why didn't He give me a better family? Why didn't He let me marry better men? God knew what was going to happen to me. He could have stopped it, but instead, He's letting me wallow in my misery. It's not fair. Now, it's real easy to hear this woman's words and to, you know, want to quote a bunch of verses. But the reality is, we've all said those things, haven't we? We have experienced the, the disappointment, the disillusionment of the Christian life as it is, as opposed to how we had hoped it would be, or to how we at least pray that it would be. The Christian life should bring the good things in life, right? God's powerful love should protect us from having challenging families, or lost jobs, or lost children, or just pain in general. But the reality is, His love for us often allows great pain. I want to invite you to turn with me to a brand new book, to 1 Peter. As we finish the Gospel of Mark, which in a sense is sort of the Gospel of Peter, because Mark was Peter's disciple, and much of what's reflected in the Gospel of Mark sort of has a Peter slant in it, 
especially right there at the very end where the angel um, includes Peter in the forgiveness of the, the disciples and the reconciliation that they would experience with Jesus. So I think it's appropriate also to go to um, something that Peter actually wrote. Now understand, 1 Peter was written toward the end of Peter's life. Peter and his uh, denial of Jesus happened in April of AD 33. 1 Peter was written in the 60s, so some 30 years later. So Peter's had a lot of time to think back through his experience with Christ. He's had a lot of time with Christians in churches. He's had a lot of time to ponder and mull over and mature a lot of the things that he experienced both in the Gospels as well as the book of Acts. I don't know if you notice, but when we get to the book of Acts, the fact that the Holy Spirit has come helps a lot, but you still see Peter as Peter. He's still sort of, I mean, now he's bold, as before he was running and hiding. Now he's bold, but he's still bold sometimes and a bit brash and still fears people. We see that very clearly in a number of cases. But first, Peter, we have not only just Peter's words, Peter's courage, but Peter inspired. Peter inspired as the Holy Spirit flows through this godly, elderly fisherman. And Peter records his, his great epistle. We're actually going to go, Lord willing, through First and Second Peter. And if I've done the math right, this ought to take us all the way to the Christmas season. So, great, great books. I made a chart, but I didn't have it ready for you, for Lisa to include this week. So I'll give it to her for this next week. And we'll kind of go through that. So if you don't mind waiting on an overview a little bit more for next week, we'll go through just the first part of the first chapter one and um, still get a good sense of what this book's about and certainly its relevance for us in, uh, in a life that is riddled with suffering. Peter, First Peter, is written to people, to Christians, who are suffering. And it's not written to them to tell them how to get out of suffering, but rather how to make it through it. You know, there's a number of Johns in the Bible, especially when you think about the fact that John means Jonah. And so if you include the Old Testament, you've got at least one extra. Um, there are a number of Jameses in the Bible, which is actually Jacob. And so if you add the Old Testament, there's a number of James and Jacobs throughout. But there's only one Peter. Have you ever noticed there's nobody else named Peter in the Bible but Peter? Jesus gave Peter his name. His original name was Simeon. And that's probably a name that I would want changed too. At least the Greek form of Simeon means snub-nosed. <laughs> How'd you like to go from snub-nosed to rocky? That's a great switch. Jesus gave Peter the name Petros, which means the rock. And of course, that great statement up at Caesarea Philippi where Jesus said, um, on this rock, on the bedrock of what you've just confessed, Peter, that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. Peter, Andrew, and Philip were from a town in Galilee. Now, we normally associate them with Capernaum because that's where they met Jesus, but they weren't raised there. That's not where they grew up. They grew up northeast some. It's not 100% sure where Bethsaida is. There's one place there that we usually go, and very well could be Bethsaida, but, but we're not 100% where Bethsaida was. But they were from Bethsaida. And what we know about Bethsaida, it was on the east side of the Jordan River, which means it was in a, another country altogether. It wasn't in Israel proper. It was in the, the territory of Herod Philip. And Herod Philip was much beholden to Rome, as were most of the Herods. And so uh, Bethsaida came to be a Greek city, which is unusual for being so close to Israel. But Bethsaida was a Greek city, and it was a Greek city even before Peter was born there. 
So think about this. Peter, a Jew, living in a Jewish culture, also was raised in Bethsaida, which was a Greek culture. And so Peter would have grown up not only knowing Greek, but speaking Greek to those around him. You know, here in the States, especially here in Texas, you know, I can say manana, and everybody in the room knows what I'm talking about, even though probably very few of us, few of you, speak Spanish. I don't speak Spanish. What I learned of Spanish, I learned mowing yards in San Antonio growing up, and I can't repeat it. <laughs> but manana, I can say. <laughs> the point is, when you're around other languages... You pick up on it. And you not only pick up on the language itself, but the nuances of it and the turns of phrases and things like that. Peter grew up in a Greek culture, Bethsaida. In fact, it's, it's interesting. I said Peter, Andrew, and Philip. Philip also, same as Andrew and Peter, grew up in this context. And when they were down in Jerusalem one time, a group of Greeks came to Philip and said, Sir, we would like to meet Jesus. Why did they come to Philip? Because Peter, because Philip understood Greeks. And that being the case, we know that Peter did too. This isn't brought out in the Gospels because in the Gospels it isn't necessarily relevant except what I mentioned there with Philip. And we can also assume that's true with Peter. But here Peter is writing this epistle and guess what language he writes it? Greek. If you think that you came from a lousy hometown... Or if you came from a culture that uh, didn't necessarily honor God. Or from a hometown that you feel like is, eh, it could have been better with spiritual things, but there was a lot of Greek in my hometown. God can still use that. God used the Greek culture that Philip grew up in to bring people, to bring Greeks to Jesus Christ. God uses you and your unusual background as well, even if it's a background that you wouldn't necessarily have chosen. God doesn't waste anything in our lives. For Philip, it was something about him that would allow him to bring Greeks to Christ. For Peter, one of the benefits of growing up in Bethsaida was Peter having a better-than-average grasp on the Greek language in such a way that he could write this book. Now, he also had help writing it. If you look at the very end of 1 Peter, I think it's Silvanus, we're told, who also is sort of the uh, verse, chapter 5, verse 12. He says, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, I have written to you. So Silvanus is helping Peter, maybe his secretary or his scribe, as it were. And Silvanus would also contribute to the Greek because the Greek in 1 Peter and 2 Peter is different. And 2 Peter almost certainly was Peter's own hand. But 1 Peter was Peter with Silvanus and a great command of the Greek language communicating wonderful, deep truths that we will have the blessing of going through here in these next few months. Well, let's, um, let's read just the first couple of verses here and kind of get our bearings on who Peter is writing to. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. This from the bumbling fisherman beside the Sea of Galilee. What rich truth in just those first two verses. Peter's readers lived in the, this area, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. This is uh, what in biblical times is called Asia Minor. Today we call it Turkey or Northern Turkey. And it was an area in which Christians were called aliens. Notice Peter in verse 1 says to those who reside as aliens. Normally when we think of Christians living as aliens in the world, in fact he'll say it later in the book, you know, we, we regard yourselves as aliens in this world. We think about it 
from the sense of, well, this world is not our home, we're just a passing through. We think of it that way. And that's true. But Peter was using sort of a double meaning because the Christians living in that culture actually were considered aliens. They were called, in fact, um, resident aliens, quote-unquote, by the Roman authorities. Why were they called that? Because of their religion. Because they were monotheists, and Rome not only worshipped Caesar, but also worshipped a, a plethora of other gods. And so for Christians to worship only one god, well, this puts you as a second-class citizen. These resident aliens, they could work the land, but they couldn't own any land. They had to join the army and pay taxes, but they couldn't vote or hold public office. This inferior status, basically brought on by their different faith, brought hostility from the communities in which they lived. They were looked on with suspicion, with contempt as Christians, and basically were treated like dirt, like second-class citizens. So understand, when Peter writes to them as resident aliens, they were being treated unfairly both by their culture and by their government, just because they were Christians. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? This is a book that more and more is becoming relevant for us here in our country, but not only that, across the world. And Peter is preparing them for a persecution that's coming for them. In fact, it may have even already started. They may have been right on the cusp of the persecution, but he's writing to those who needed to get ready. And how were they going to prepare themselves for this time? But immediately after Peter says, look, here's how the world sees you. The world sees you as second class. The world sees you as a Christian, as subpar, as, as um, because of your religious faith, you're viewed less than the rest of us. Immediately after addressing how the world sees them, Peter tells them how God sees them. God saw them not as worthless, but notice what the text says of great worth. They were chosen according to God's eternal knowledge and predetermined plan. And did you notice how all the members of the Trinity are involved? The Father chose you beforehand, foreknowledge. This talks about his election. It talks about our predestination, that God chose us before we chose him. And that, that, that part of our, our minds that can't wrap around, how are we held obligated to choose God and yet he chose us. I don't know. How does the Trinity make sense? I don't know. But the Bible clearly teaches it. That God's great mercy has caused us to be born again through a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, Verse 3. So we've got all the members of the Trinity involved. God the Father, the sanctifying work of the Spirit in our lives. And here's the goal of God's foreknowledge of the Spirit's sanctifying work. The goal is twofold. First of all, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. To be sprinkled with blood sort of takes us back to Exodus, where Moses literally sprinkled the crowd with blood as a symbol of the fact that the blood was covering what they had done. And this is a metaphor that is also true of us because of Jesus Christ shed blood on the cross. That God chose us by his grace, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that we might be covered by the blood of Christ, meaning that we would be forgiven of all of our sins because of Jesus Christ's atoning work on the cross. But not only has he he given us this purpose in order to save us, but so that we might obey him to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So here in these first couple of verses, Peter introduces us really to the tension of the whole book. The whole book sets out to solve this tension. We struggle with with feeling inferior, feeling with struggle in the world in which we live, 
and yet at the same time realizing that God our Father is working in our lives because we belong to him. Let's look now at verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, the resurrection of Christ from the dead is a marvelous miracle. But think also about the miracle of our salvation. I mean, from, for, the world to, for the Lord to make the world out of nothing, that's a pretty big deal. For the world to make saints out of sinners, that's a huge deal. That involves a changed life, a changed perspective and repentance. And notice through what Peter has said here, the clear implication that none of us can do it on our own. We are a child headed down a ravine on a bicycle with no brakes, and we're headed for certain destruction if our Father does not step in. It is because of God's great mercy, Peter says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. You know, there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. It's, it's given by his grace. And here's the other side of that. We're pretty familiar with that part, that we're saved simply by grace. But you know what? We also stay saved by grace. If it's true that you can't earn anything, any good grace by God, then it's also true that you can't lose it. You can't lose by works what you gained by grace. Peter tells us that we've been born again. It's a phrase that he picked up, obviously, from our Lord Jesus, the conversation that Christ had with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, most famous conversation in the Bible in which Jesus talks about being born again and ultimately with the John 3.16 of God loving the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Peter says that we're born again. It's a spiritual rebirth. And he says that we have also, you're born again into a living hope. I love this word. It's not just living, but the, Greek, the original Greek word here is, uh, you might translate it better, lively, a lively hope. It's a hope that's alive. It's not just a living hope because Christ raised from the dead, but it is a vibrant living hope. It's a lively hope. You can think of it like a, a buoy on, on the water. It's just it's on top. There's no, there's no way it's going to sink, but it's not just sitting there. It's kind of bobbing along. It's floating along. It's lively. There's action. In fact, the same word is used uh, in other places of living water. Living water refers to a spring. It's not uh, a cistern where you're just catching rainwater and the rainwater can get mold and, you know, all kinds of gross junk in it. It's not a well that is also dependent on having to dig. Living water is a spring that bursts forth from the surface and the source is fresh, clean, endless supply of water. It was the best kind. And this is living water. And it's, it's a water that's living, alive, and it's moving. It's the same word that's used here for our hope. It's a living hope. It's a lively hope. It's not a hope that, that we just kind of capture and have in a, in a cistern. It is a hope that has a never-ending source. It never runs dry because of the resurrection of Jesus. And since Jesus lives forever... Peter gives us the results of that now for those of us who have been born again. Look at these wonderful results, verses 4 and 5. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Boy, that is rich. That is, that's dense with, with truth. 
I remember one time seeing a commercial on TV that uh, began with this little girl standing in a field. She's just kind of standing there, and there the announcer underneath has this deep voice that says, trust is not being afraid. And then you start to hear this rumbling. And you see this huge rhinoceros coming from the other side of the field heading right toward the little girl. And the little girl is just standing there smiling. you know. And then again, trust is not being afraid. And the rhino runs right up to the girl and stops right in front of the girl you know, dust is still circling, and she just never stops smiling, and she just reaches up and pets his horn. (laughs) And then the announcer goes on to say, even when you are vulnerable. Oh, that's a great commercial, but that wouldn't have happened. That would not have happened. But it's it's a great picture. If you can think about everything this world tries to throw at us, We are as secure as that commercial wants us to believe that insurance company would provide us uh, that kind of security. But the reality is we are that secure. These verses that we've just read, Peter describes what believers will receive. We who are born again, we will obtain an inheritance, Peter says, that is imperishable. An inheritance that is imperishable. Sometimes you might be expecting uh, an inheritance when you think of it from a, a parent or from a family member or um, you know someone that would that would will something to you. And I don't know if you've ever had the experience of expecting something but getting something completely different. That's quite a letdown regarding inheritance, because once it's done, it's kind of done. There's no going back. Well, Peter says the inheritance that God is prepared for us is one that is several things. First of all, imperishable. This word imperishable, the original word refers to not being subject to decay and death. Again, remember, it's a living hope we have. It is a, a lively hope. And it is a, an inheritance that will not decay, will not perish. Peter also says it's undefiled, meaning it's not ritually defiled. We might think of it as untainted. It is absolutely pure. It is undefiled. It is imperishable. And finally, he says it, it will not fade away. And it's a great translation. The fading is what happens with bright colors. The, the word basically means it's not going to lose the wonderful, pristine character that it originally had. This is our inheritance, these adjectives. Death can't touch it. Evil can't stain it. Time can't diminish it. This is what we have to look forward to. What a contrast to what the world seeks. I saw a uh, cartoon that showed, it, it, looked, it was a guy basically looked like he was selling hot dogs in a, uh, like for a ball game. He's walking around with the little hot dog box and he had the hat and on it, it on his box, but there was nothing in the box. And on the box it said, nothing, $2. And he was shouting, nothing, get you nothing here. And one of the guys over there, you know, just kind of shows him with his hand up, you know, and $2. And I thought, that, you know, that's pretty much what the world sells us, isn't it? It runs around with a box of nothing, and we give them money for it. Of course, actually, just this morning, it was funny, just this morning I was looking in the news, some news article showed what's in a hot dog. It's better to pay $2 for nothing. <laughs> Than to get that hot dog. But this is, think of our inheritance. Imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away versus what the world offers us. It is empty. It is a fool's bargain when we buy what the world gives us. What Jesus Christ gave us when he died is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. And, notice, it is reserved. It is reserved in heaven for you. 
Don't you love it when you when you usually pay for something, but when you when you get something that says it's reserved, your seat is reserved. Ah, you think ah, we don't have to rush. We can take our time. Our seats are reserved. You know what? Your your seat is reserved. Jesus Christ paid the ticket. Your seat is reserved. And what are you going to get when you get there? You get an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. And it is reserved, notice, by God. God reserves it. And not only simply God, but the power of God reserves it. The phrase could literally be translated, those who are continually guarded by God's power through faith. The word used here for protected refers to a soldier guarding. It's a soldier who's guarding this. You imagine God as a soldier protecting and guarding the inheritance that will not fade away reserved for you. What a great salvation awaits us because of what Jesus has done. We've all been to funerals, and funerals particularly for individuals who trusted in Jesus Christ, have an incredible mix of emotions, of sadness and joy. Have you noticed? It's both. And it's both at extremes. You have extreme sadness because of the separation and the fact that you know that until glory, you won't see this person again. But at the same time, you have great joy because you know they're with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and there's joy and expectation of seeing them again. This, Peter says, is, is why he is revealing to us the great joy of our salvation because in the midst of our tears, there can be laughter. And this is what he goes on to begin to explain. Look at verse 6. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials couple of great observations in this verse, and I want to give you four reasons Peter tells us that we can laugh through the tears. And when I say laugh through the tears, I could have said rejoice through the tears, but uh, laugh through the tears is, is sort of a, maybe a better metaphor. And by laughing, I don't mean you laugh it off. I mean, how can you have genuine joy in the midst of struggles that are genuine as well? One doesn't cancel the other, but one does go along with the other. When you're at a funeral, the joy of, of what you're feeling doesn't cancel the sorrow of what you're feeling. They're both there. And this is what Peter's talking about. When you are distressed by various trials, Peter says, your great salvation is something that comes right alongside and gives you strength as you walk day by day through the struggles. But notice a couple of things couple of principles. There are four reasons that we can laugh through the tears, and here's the first one. Peter tells us because trials are temporary. Notice how he says it here. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while. Trials are temporary. The trials, Peter says, are but for a little while, but our inheritance, remember, is in heaven, and it's imperishable, meaning it'll never end. It's not for a little while. It's forever. It will not fade away. This is essential. Good grief, this is essential. Without this, we can become extremely discouraged. I think one of the, t one t one of the times that we get most discouraged in life is when we get so focused on the difficulty or the trial, and we don't focus, in addition to that, on the joy of our salvation. Peter goes at length in these initial verses and describes in great depth the great beauty of our salvation as a buoy, as a, as a life preserver that's thrown at us as we are in the waters of these storms. Catherine Marshall said this, the wife of the late great um, chaplain of the Senate, Peter Marshall. Catherine writes, I can see that Jesus drew men and women into the kingdom by promising them two things. First, trouble. Hardship, danger, and second, joy. But what a curious alchemy that he can make even danger and hardship seem joyous. 
He understands things about human nature that we grasp only dimly. Few of us are really challenged by the promise of soft living, by an emphasis on me first, or by a life of easy compromise. We can laugh through the tears, first of all, because trials are temporary. And here's the second reason Peter mentions in this verse, because trials are necessary. They're not only temporary, they are necessary. Notice how he wrote it. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed. And that word if in the original language could be translated a number of ways. Uh, Because it is assumed to be true, it could also be translated since. Since it is necessary. The trials that we experience, uh, they are necessary. Why? Years ago, Kathy and I took the girls to Pikes Peak up in near Colorado Springs, and we were driving our van. We actually drove up there, drove the van, driving about, we got about maybe two-thirds of the way up there, and the rangers stopped us, and they said, we're sorry, we can't let you go any higher. We said, you know, like we've like driven from Texas. Can we please go to the top? They said, well, we could let you go to the top, but the wind is so strong it'll blow out your windshield. We said, you know what, it's fine right here. (laughs) But as we were making our way back down, I was looking at the trees, and the tree, it was, I mean, the winds were amazingly strong. And the trees were just, I mean, they were going all over the, violently in in the wind. And yet they weren't breaking. And I thought about a study that I had read of these scientists who put together, tried to put together the perfect ecosystem for uh, growing plants and trees and whatnot. And the study, they, they had the perfect amount of moisture, the perfect amount of sunlight, everything was perfect. But after a while, the trees began to bend over and snap under their own weight because they had no wind to make them strong. And it turned out the scientist hadn't factored in the benefit of the harsh elements. Helen Keller wrote, Character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened. Vision cleared. Interesting she would say that. Vision cleared. Ambition inspired. And success achieved. The Apostle describes our trials as various, various trials. Mine aren't like yours, yours aren't like mine, and mine today won't be like mine tomorrow. I don't know if you noticed, but about the time you get out of a season of trials and you think, whew, I am so glad we're done with that. Then you roll out of bed the next day and there's a fresh set waiting for you. And somehow you think, well, Lord, you got me through that last bit of trials, but I'm not so sure it's going to work this time. Every day is a new challenge to trust God. Sometimes we learn from the past. Sometimes we still need to relearn what we didn't learn the last time through these trials. I like what Mother Teresa said. She said, I knew God would not give me anything I can't handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. (laughs) Isn't that great? We read verse 6. Let's read verse 6 again and continue to verse 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that... Here's the purpose of those trials. The proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is why God lets us struggle. This is why the trials that you experience are necessary. This is why the struggles that I go through are necessary. Because, Peter says, they prove our faith. Verse 7. The proof of your faith. And notice, the proof of your faith is more precious than gold, which is perishable. And when we think about 
gold, we don't think about gold which is, that is perishable. I mean, we're still digging up gold from thousands of years ago. Everything else perishes but gold. Gold is a precious metal because of its lasting quality. And yet, Peter tells us here that gold is perishable, even though tested by fire. So now we're not talking about just gold, but gold that is refined and purified and absolutely pure, even this is perishable compared to the preciousness of the proof of our faith. When you make it through a trial and the Lord has enabled you to make it through that trial, your spiritual life gets a boost. And it is more precious than anything. It's more precious than gold. It's more precious than money. It's more precious than the best this world has to offer. Because remember, the best this world has to offer is an empty box of nothing. But what we're given is more precious than gold. And not only is it more precious, but it, it has a great result. It results in praise and glory and honor. Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the hard part. We want the praise and glory and honor now. Wouldn't it be great as soon as you obey the Lord all of a sudden for something great to happen? Like two or three angels to show up and go, great job, Taylor, you were faithful. And then they disappear. Wouldn't that be great? I wonder who would show up when you aren't faithful. Maybe, maybe the same angels. I don't know. Anyway, but you understand what I'm saying. We don't get that. We don't get that immediate sense of affirmation. Sometimes we get it in our spirit, but honestly, sometimes we're faithful and we think, God, where is the blessing in this hard faithfulness I'm enduring? Well, Peter tells us where it is. It comes at the revelation of Jesus Christ, at the rapture at our resurrection, and not until. We may catch glimpses of it, but the reality is the full breadth of this wonderful inheritance that we're looking forward to, that's imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, protected by God through faith for, for this salvation. This thing that we greatly rejoice in comes at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not until. Not until. In the meantime, for a little while, if necessary, we're distressed by various trials. The words that are used here are wonderful words that Peter uses that our faith is more precious uh, than gold. It might be better to translate it more valuable than purified gold. Peter clearly is making a contrast here between purified faith and purified gold. Both take fire. Both take trials. And the proof or the genuineness of our faith brings glory and honor and praise to Jesus and us as a, as a result of glorifying Him. So the first thing, the first two things, they're necessary, they're temporary, but here's the third thing. We can laugh through the tears because trials provide the opportunity to honor Jesus. Trials provide the opportunity to honor Jesus because the proof or the genuineness of our faith will bring praise and glory and honor when Jesus comes. The word that Peter uses here for uh, proof is really the word for testing. I don't know, we may have used this example before, but it's such a good one. You notice those commercials when Ford tests GM trucks? When Ford tests GM trucks, they're showing everything wrong with GM trucks, right? When Ford tests Ford trucks, they're showing everything right with it. Two different kinds of tests. One to show weakness, one to show strength. One to show uh, uh, value, one to show weakness. We have those same two words in the Greek New Testament as well. And one is translated trials or temptations, depending on the context, but another is simply testing. And the word that's used here, Peter uses, is the word that shows a test for approval. God doesn't test us to watch us fail. Never. 
In fact, that's what James mean when James means when he says, the Lord does not test us, nor can he be tested. He doesn't test us like that. God tests us to show the genuineness of our faith. He lets us go through trials to prove that we are who he says that we are. It's sort of like test driving a car. How many of you would have a confidence in buying a car without test driving a car? Sight unseen. Probably none of us. We all test drive the car. It's the test for the purpose of approving. And that's what Peter says, that the proof of your faith or the test of your faith is going to result in what? Good. Praise, glory, and honor. So we laugh through the tears because we know that trials provide the opportunity to honor Jesus. So the struggle that you're going through right now, your goal, my goal, shouldn't be simply, God, get me out of this, but rather, God, help me be faithful. Help me be faithful so that when Jesus comes, there can be praise and glory and honor, that my faith that the proof of my faith can give glory to Jesus Christ. Trials prove your faith, and your proof glorifies Jesus. Peter tells us more about this faith. Look at verse 8. He says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of of your souls. Here's the fourth and final lesson. Peter says you can laugh through the tears because of the certainty of your salvation. He says we can rejoice because we obtain as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. The outcome of your faith is the salvation of your souls. And Peter says he says, you, you love him, though you don't see him. I heard a, a story about some children who were called in for dinner, and like all of our mothers say, have said to us, and like we said to all of our kids, be sure and wash your hands before you eat. And this little boy was heard muttering as he walked over to the bathroom, germs in Jesus, germs in Jesus. That's all I hear about, and I've never seen either one. <laughs> oh, you got to love it. <laughs> We haven't seen him, but we love him. We haven't seen him, Peter says. You have not seen him, but you love him. And the word there for love is the word for agape love, or in the verb form. That you love him with a sacrificial love. You don't love him because he makes you feel good. That's a different word. It's, a, it's not just a friendship love. It's a love of sacrifice. We sacrificially love Jesus Christ even though we've never seen him. And he says, you don't see him now, but you believe in him and you greatly rejoice. He says that again, just like in verse 6. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Look at the way that's phrased. Not only do you rejoice... You greatly rejoice. Not only do you greatly rejoice, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Why? Because of the certainty of your salvation. Look at this salvation in the last three verses here. We'll look at this. Verse 10. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. This salvation that we greatly rejoice in, Peter tells us, is a salvation that the prophets have looked forward to for centuries. In fact, even the prophets that were writing their own stuff were looking down and saying, when is he coming? How can we figure out, even through what we've written, when he's coming? They longed for it. And we're told that even angels long to look. The word here for look is kind of a cute word, if I can say that about anything in the Bible. But it's a word that, that means looking over just for a quick peek. 
just a quick glimpse. The angels long to look. They, they just even want a glimpse of our salvation. And we aren't told why, but we can put two and two together, and that's that the angelic realm didn't have anybody die for their sins. The holy angels are the holy angels for good, and the unrighteous angels are the unrighteous angels for good. But it wasn't that way with us. We all have sinned, and yet because of Jesus Christ, anyone who believes in him can have their sins forgiven. What a great, great salvation. Just as the prophets predicted the suffering of Christ, notice Peter said, and the glories to follow. See that order? Sufferings, glories to follow. Peter sets that up as our model because we're going to suffer. But we can rejoice because of the glory that is coming. Well, let's, let's close in prayer. Father, we all struggle. We all have tears. We all have trials that seemed at the time so absolutely difficult. And honestly, now there'd be many of those things that we've completely forgotten about. We need someone to remind us. You got us through. You helped us persevere. And the proof of our faith that's more precious than gold which perishes will one day give glory to Jesus Christ when he comes. Father, uh, I just pray for anyone, first of all, who's here that doesn't have this great salvation, that they would give their heart to the one who died on the cross for them, who was raised again and has given them a living hope. And for all of us who have that faith, to bring that faith right alongside our trials, as Peter challenges us to do, that while we are struggling for a time, it is just for a time, it's temporary, and it's necessary. It gives us the great privilege of honoring Jesus Christ and of letting our faith be proven to be genuine. Thank you for this wonderful hope of salvation that we look forward to and the great hope that Jesus could come today. And we pray in his name. Amen.